wonderful choir, and they, they work really, really hard each week um, to show and reflect the gospel to us. And I just want to um, say that they're going to continue to work really hard because we're entering Lent, and they're going to get beginning ready for Easter. And so I just ask you to keep them in your prayers over the next several weeks as they um, work overtime to prepare for Easter. And if you're interested, actually, in being a part of that, I know that Rebecca would love to talk to you about being a part of this choir. I promise that... Um, that if you do so, you will be richly blessed by that time they spend together on Wednesday nights, and you will be a blessing to us uh, each and every Sunday. Um, so we are in the midst of kind of a transitional space. We ended a worship series last week entitled Recoloring the Bible, um, and we are preparing to start a brand new series uh, next Sunday, uh, season of Lent uh, gets underway. And so today is Transfiguration Sunday, and it is a good text for us to connect really these two series. So um, I invite you to rise and body your spirit for the reading of the gospel. We'll be reading from Matthew, the 17th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make you three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Help us to cultivate a sense of curiosity, to become comfortable with mystery as we move forward as disciples of the transfigured Christ. Amen. So on occasion, and it's actually more rare than you may believe, uh, my dad and I uh, preach on the same text. Uh, my dad's a United Methodist pastor at University Park, United Methodist Church. And on those Sundays where we are preparing uh, for the same type of sermon around the same type of text, we um, 
we will exchange notes. And like I said, this doesn't happen often. He did not have the courage necessary to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... uh, I'm just joking. Well, not really. I don't know. (laughs) But when this happens, I always enjoy the conversations that my father and I have. um, The conversations that kind of revolve around the commentaries we are reading on a specific text or some articles that uh, we are passing back and forth to one another. It's just it's it just warms my heart to know that Uh, Right now, my dad's also delivering a sermon on the same text. And so this week, we've been talking a lot um, about this text in Matthew. And my dad went on to say this. He said that uh, he was going to start his sermon with a joke. Um, And so I asked him to tell me that joke, um, and he did. And the joke my father told me was really, really bad. It was actually, it it was an awful joke. Um, I, it, I mean, it was a dad joke if there ever was one, and um, it's the you know it was a really strong dad joke if I've ever heard one, and in fact I've heard a lot of dad jokes from my dad. It's one of my dad's hobbies, uh, you know, to tell these dad jokes with absolutely zero shame. Um, and if you don't believe me that my dad's good at this, I invite you to head over to University Park UMC's website, upumc.org, and give today's sermon a listen next week. Um, That is one of my dad's hobbies. Uh, But my dad actually has a lot of hobbies because he's an Enneagram 5. He likes to do things and learn about things and kind of collect things. So uh, over the course of my life, I've seen my dad really get obsessed about certain things and turn them into hobbies. My dad's really into astronomy, and so he bought a telescope, and he travels with it wherever he goes. He also has a saltwater uh, fish tank, and he's very proud of that. Um, he also, when I was a kid, he learned how uh, to do stained glass, and so there are pieces that still hang in my parents' house that my dad made while he was into stained glass. Um, also, he painted an icon. One day, my father told me, hey, uh, I think I'm going to paint an icon, and I just looked at him, and I said, okay. And then, uh, and then he proceeded to spend the next six months in an iconography class, and then he painted one icon. Uh, it sits in his study, and that's the only icon he's ever painted, uh, but it is a very beautiful icon. Uh, but my favorite hobby of my dad is this really odd thing he does. Um, he loves magic tricks. It's true. I don't know what the line of delineation is uh, between calling someone a magician and uh, just someone who likes magic tricks. I don't know, but my dad really, really loves a good magic trick. And I remember growing up in a household where my dad was constantly fiddling with a new magic trick. And I fell in love with a good magic trick. I fell in love with this uh, inability to be able to explain what was happening. And the more my dad would practice these magic tricks, uh, the harder it was for me to really grasp what was going on. Now, there were times when I, try, I thought I could figure it out, but for the most part, I never figured out how the sword went through my neck, right? I also never figured out how he actually pulled uh, a stuffed rabbit out of a hat. And I fell in love with this inability to explain what my father was doing. 
The philosopher Charles Taylor has said, we now seem to live in a world without magic. The history of humanity was full of magic. For centuries, the transcendent and the mysterious was bound up with the mundane and the certain. At least that was the case until a few hundred years ago with the dawn of the Enlightenment. Once we began this process of becoming enlightened, we discovered the scientific method, and we developed reason, and we became critical. We learned to ask really, really good questions, and we doubted mystery, and we demanded facts. And as we became enlightened in this tiny sliver of history that we occupied, we could now discount and belittle the ignorance and the superstition of the past. This is also, just a side note, this is also when biblical fundamentalism also began to grow. Because if the science defined truth as fact, of course the Bible then must be 100% factual. So after we discovered science, we lived in this age of progress, and we only looked forward, never back. What was old was suspect. We believed that we could improve our world and our lives through our own reason and our own cleverness, which on one hand is actually rather remarkable and true. I am someone who loves facts. And I am very skeptical of things I cannot see. For the past week, the staff and I have been entangled in a great debate about whether or not ghosts exist. And I, uh, and I, I guess I'm agnostic on the whole ghost thing. I don't really have an opinion, but I need to see things. I need to touch them. I need them to be real. Right? If I am to really, really believe in them. And so I get this, this need that we have for reason and fact. But as I have grown older, as I have grown away from the more magical days of my childhood, watching my dad perform magic tricks in the living room, I've begun to realize that my own cleverness and reason can actually only get me so far. I've come to recognize that I, I need a reality bigger than one I can understand. I need the transfiguration story. And so our gospel story today, Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, right? His clothes become a blinding white. He is indeed glowing Suddenly, he is talking to Moses and Elijah, who have been dead, or gone at least, for centuries. Elijah left this earth on a blazing chariot, but that's another odd story, probably one that fit better in in our previous worship series. And I will admit to you all that this story, it feels magical. Jesus is on a mountain talking to Moses and Elijah. 
it's as if time, which is on some sort of linear line, becomes all confused. The line of time, right? The past, the present, and the future all become tangled up in this one moment. And then a cloud appears. And God says in God's own voice, Hey, this is my son. Listen to him. I mean, honestly, it's all too much and too difficult to comprehend. So Peter in the story, who represents us in the story, says it's good for us to be here. That is Peter's response. It's good for us to be here. And then Peter gets busy trying to contain what is happening on the mountain by building dwellings or small altars. Peter's real only response is, it's good for us to be here. What else do you say? What else is there to say? Peter is terrified. And in the face of the holy, the unexplainable, the unfiltered divine, what else is there to do? This is the thing about God, something I've learned slowly over time. The more we know about God, the less certain we are. The more we experience God, the less sure we are. So White Rock, it is indeed good for us to be here in this space. Not so we can understand what this text means for us today, but rather to become or to begin to become comfortable in our uncomfortableness. A lot of ways to try and to understand this text, but they all kind of fall short. We cannot make sense of today's story, the transfigured Christ. But we can see that in the uncertainty, Peter is indeed transformed. In fact, if you've been reading the Gospels for any amount of time, you realize that Peter is transformed over and over. And Peter's transformation is a long and winding road. One could argue that he reaches his fullest potential when he is crucified by Nero and the Roman Empire, when he ultimately gives his life to God. But between Jesus calling Peter and Peter's own death, Peter reflects time and time again an uncertainty that each and every one of us possess. Whether it's Peter walking on the water or alone and fearful the night of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter is constantly up and down, hot and cold, bold in his proclamation of who Jesus is and unsure of who Jesus is. Peter is all over the place, and so am I. Six days before this magical encounter on a mountain, Peter actually affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. It is a beautiful representation of Peter coming to grips with who Jesus is. But then one really weird experience with bright lights and with the booming voice of God, with a glowing Savior and the ghost of giants of the past, Peter is stumbling all over the place, trying to make sense out of the unknowable, and he simply can't do it. He is once again lost. And yet, P 
Peter becomes the rock in which Jesus builds his church. God, for some reason, doesn't call the powerful. He often calls the speechless. God doesn't call the well-connected. God calls the working class the fishermen. God doesn't call those with absolute certainty. Rather, God calls the doubters, the skeptics, and the unsure. And so it is good for us to be here to be reminded that even in our own doubts and uncertainty, we too are called, each and every one of us. Not called so we can get all the answers because sometimes answers are too easy. They can obscure mystery. And we are a people of faith that must become comfortable with mystery. Easy answers are all too easy at times. We, like Peter, are on a longer journey, one in which our faith cannot be memorized or proven to be true. Like Peter, we will stumble in the face of mystery. We will doubt and even deny when fear takes hold. And yet, each and every one of us is called to the gospel story. And in the midst of our uncertainty, God continues to show up. We will indeed all be changed. It's just a slow, ongoing process. So it is good for us to be here. To be reminded that the mystery of God is best understood in the comfort of an unknowable story. It is good for us to be here. To be reminded that God continues to call each of us into a life that is full of both mystery and hope. Because there is very little certainty about the gospel's claim on your life. Next week, we will move into a season of Lent. And we as a staff and the leaders of the church, we have put a lot of expectations on this season for us here at White Rock. Our worship series starting next week will indeed challenge us. Our book study on white fragility, that will challenge us. Our weekly worship that will happen on Wednesdays, it will also challenge us and Holy Week will challenge us. And we will be reminded that during Lent, the only thing that we can be certain about is just a few things. One, that we live in a broken world. We'll be reminded that all of us one day will return to dust and to ash. And we'll be reminded that God is with us in the midst of this journey. And as we move towards Holy Holy Week and Monday, Thursday, we will gather around a table and partake in a holy mystery, one grounded with simple bread and juice, and we will marvel at the past, present, and future compacting and getting tangled up in one another once again. And as we enter into Lent, we will learn, like Peter, that Christ's resurrection, while not while not easy or even possible to understand, will indeed change us, transform us into less certain but more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Indeed, friends, siblings in Christ, it is good for us to be here today and in the days to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.